Chapter Twenty Five of American Leaders and Heroes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hannah Yu. American Leaders and Heroes by Wilbur F. Gordy. Ulysses Simpson Grant and the Civil War, eighteen twenty-two to eighteen twenty-five. In tracing the leading events in the remarkable career of the martyr president, we have had occasion to refer briefly to the causes and results of the Civil War. It was a struggle that tested the manhood quite as much as the resources of the warring sections, and each side might well be proud of the bravery and military skill displayed by its officers and soldiers. Certainly, each side had among its generals some of the greatest military leaders of all time. One of these. Who was by common consent regarded as the ablest general that led northern troops in battle was Ulysses Simpson Grant. He was born in a humble dwelling at Point Pleasant, O, in April 1822. The year following his birth, the family removed to Georgetown, O, where they lived many years. The father of Ulysses was a farmer and manufacturer of leather. The boy did not like the leather business, but was fond of the various kind of farm work. When only seven years old. He hauled all the wood which was needed in the home and at the leather factory from a forest a mile from the village. As he was too small to load and unload the wood, the men did that for him. From the age of eleven to seventeen, according to his own story as told in his personal memoirs, he plowed the soil, cultivated the growing corn and potatoes, sawed firewood for his father's store, and did any other work that would naturally fall to the lot of a farmer's boy. He had his recreations also, including fishing, swimming in the creek not far from his home, skating in winter, and driving about the country winter and summer. Young Grant liked horses and early became a skillful rider. Lincoln told a story of him which indicates not only his expert horsemanship but his bulldog grit as well. One day, when he was at a circus, the manager offered a silver dollar to anybody who could ride a certain mule around the ring. Several persons, one after another, mounted the animal only to be thrown over its head. Young Ulysses was among those who offered to ride, but like the others, he was unsuccessful. Then, pulling off his coat, he got on the animal again, putting his legs firmly around the mule's body and seizing him by the tail. Ulysses rode triumphantly around the ring. Amid the cheers of the expectant crowd, although he cared little for study, his father wished to give him all the advantages of a good education and secured for him an appointment at West Point. This was indeed a rare opportunity for thorough training in scholarship, but Ulysses was rather indifferent to it. He had a special aptitude for mathematics and became an expert horseman. But with these exceptions, he took little interest in the training received at this famous military school. His rank being only twenty-first in the class of thirty-nine. After graduation, he wished to leave the army and become an instructor in mathematics at West Point. But as the Mexican War broke out, about that time he entered active service. Soon he gave striking evidence of that fearless bravery for which he was to become so noted on the battlefields of the Civil War. It fell to his lot to deliver a message which was necessitated a dangerous ride. He says of it. Before starting, I adjusted myself on the side of my horse farthest from the enemy, and with only one foot holding to the cantle of the saddle and an arm over the neck of the horse exposed, I started at full run. It was only at the street crossings that my horse was under fire, but there I crossed at such a flying rate that generally I was passed and under cover of the next block of houses before the enemy fired. I got out safely without a scratch. Shortly after the close of the war, Grant was married. 
Six years later, he resigned from the army and went with his family to live on a farm in St. Louis. Although he worked hard, he found it uphill work to support his family and was eventually compelled by bad health to give up farming. He next tried the real estate business, but without success. At last, his father offered him a place in his leather and hardware store, where Grant worked as clerk until the outbreak of the Civil War. With the news that the Southern troops had fired upon the flag at Fort Sumter, Grant's patriotism was aroused. Without delay, he rejoined the army and at once took an active part in the preparations for war. First as colonel and then as brigadier general, he led his troops. At last, he had found a field of action in which he quickly developed his powers as a leader. The first of his achievements was the capture of Forts Henry and Donaldson, the center of a strong Confederate line of defense extending from Columbus to Cumberland Gap. At Fort Donaldson, he received the surrender of nearly 15,000 prisoners, and by his great victory compelled the Confederates to abandon two of their most important strongholds, Columbus and Nashville. After the loss of Fort Donaldson, the Confederates fell back to a second line of defense, extending from Memphis through Corinth to Chattanooga. The Confederate army took position at Corinth, General Grant's army at Pittsburgh Landing, 18 miles away. Here, early on Sunday morning, April 6, 1862, Grant was attacked by Johnson, and his men were driven back a mile and a half toward the river. It was a fearful battle, lasting until nearly dark. Not until after midnight was Grant able to rest, and then, as he sat in the rain leaning against the foot of a tree, he slept a few hours before the renewal of battle on Monday morning. With reinforcements, he was able on the second day to drive the enemy off the field and win a signal victory. By this battle, Grant broke the second Confederate line of defense. Although the Confederates fought bravely and well to prevent the Northern troops from getting control of the Mississippi River, by the close of 1862, they had lost every stronghold except Port Hudson and Vicksburg. In 1863, General Grant put forth a resolute effort to capture Vicksburg, and after a brilliant campaign laid siege to the city. For seven weeks, the Confederate army held out. Meanwhile, the people of Vicksburg found shelter in caves and cellars, their food at times consisting of rats and meal flesh. But on July 4, 1863, the day following General Lee's defeat at Gettysburg, General Pemberton, with an army numbering about 32,000 men, surrendered Vicksburg to General Grant. Four days later, Port Hudson was captured, and thus the last stronghold of the Mississippi came under control of the North. General Grant's success was in no small measure due to his dogged perseverance. While his army was laying siege to Vicksburg, a Confederate woman, at whose door he stopped to ask a drink of water, inquired whether he expected ever to capture Vicksburg. Certainly, he replied, but when was her next question? Quickly came the answer, I cannot tell exactly when I shall take the town, but I mean to stay here till I do, if it takes me thirty years. General Grant, having by his effective campaign won the confidence of the people, President Lincoln in 1864 made him lieutenant general, thus placing him in command of all the northern forces. In presenting the new commission, Lincoln addressed General Grant in these words, as the country herein trusts you, so, under God, it will sustain you. General Grant made answer, I feel the full weight of the responsibilities now devolving upon me, and I know that if they are met, it will be due to those armies, and above all, to the favor of that providence which leads both nations and men. Early in May 1864, Grant entered upon his final campaign in Virginia, 
and while he marched with his army unto Richmond, General Sherman in Georgia pushed his army unto Atlanta and unto the sea. Both generals were able, and both had able opponents. Grant crossed the Rapidan and entered the wilderness, while Lee's army contested every foot of his advance. In the terrible fighting that followed, Grant's losses were severe. But with bulldog grit, to use Lincoln's phrase, he pressed on, writing to the president his stubborn resolve. I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. It did take all summer and more, for Grant found it impossible to capture Richmond by attacking it from the northern side. He therefore transferred his army across the James River and attacked the city from the south. But at the end of the summer, Lee still held out. Nor did Lee relinquish his position until April 2, 1865, when he was compelled to retreat toward the west. Grant pursued him closely for a week, during which Lee's troops suffered great privation, living mainly on parched corn and the young shoots of trees. Aware that the southern cause was hopeless, the distinguished leader of the Confederate armies, after a most brilliant retreat, decided that the time had come to give up the struggle. While suffering from a severe sick headache, General Grant received a note from Lee saying that the latter was now willing to consider terms of surrender. It was a remarkable occasion when the two eminent generals met on that Sunday morning in what is known as the McLean House, standing in the little village of Appomattox Courthouse. Grant writes in his personal memoirs, I was without a sword, as I usually was when on horseback on the field, and wore a soldier's blouse for a coat, with the shoulder straps of my rank to indicate to the army who I was. General Lee was dressed in a full uniform which was entirely new, and was wearing a sword of considerable value, very likely the sword which had been presented by the state of Virginia. In my rough traveling suit, the uniform of a private with the straps of a lieutenant general, I must have contrasted very strangely with a man so handsomely dressed, six feet high and of thoughtless form. The result of the interview was the surrender of General Lee with his entire army of 26,000 men. General Grant at this time gave striking evidence of his great kindness of heart and fine delicacy of feeling. He issued orders that all the Confederates who owned horses and mules should be allowed to take them home. They will need them for the spring plowing, he said. He spared the vanquished troops the humiliation of marching out and stacking their arms in token of surrender and even stopped the firing of salutes by his men. Never, indeed, did General Grant appear more truly great than on the occasion of Lee's surrender. Thus ended the military career of the greatest general that the North produced during the Civil War. While in the army, he seemed to have marvelous powers of endurance. He said to himself, whether I slept on the ground or in a tent, whether I slept one hour or ten in the twenty-four, whether I had one meal or three or none, made no difference. I could lie down and sleep in the rain without caring. His appearance did not indicate his robust health. He was only five feet eight inches tall, round-shouldered, and not military in bearing or walk. He had brown hair, blue eyes, and a musical voice. He was of a sunny disposition and singularly pure soul, never having been known in all his life to speak an unclean word or tell an objectionable story. Quiet and simple in manner, he never became excited even in the heat of battle, but always kept himself cool and collected, ready for the severest ordeal that he might have to face. It need hardly be said that at the close of the war he had a warm place in the hearts of his countrymen. Wherever he went, people flocked to see him. But like Washington and Jefferson, he found speech-making most difficult. 
At one time, in the presence of friends, General Grant's young son Jesse mounted a haystack and said, "I'll show you how Papa makes a speech." Ladies and gentlemen, I am very glad to see you. I thank you very much. Good night. All present were greatly amused except Grant, who was much embarrassed, feeling that his little son's effort verged too closely upon the truth. Grant was elected president of the United States in 1868 and served two terms. Upon retiring from the presidency, he made a tour around the world and was everywhere received by rulers and people alike with great honor and distinction. During his last days, he suffered from an incurable disease, which became a worse enemy than he had ever found on the field of battle. After nine months of struggle, he died at Mount McGregor near Saratoga on July twenty-three, eighteen eighty-five. His body was laid to rest in Riverside Park on the Hudson, where in eighteen ninety-seven a magnificent monument was erected to his memory. Like Lincoln and Washington, he will ever live in the hearts of his countrymen. End of chapter twenty-five.